My mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. Maya Angelou. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription Podcast with Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are going to jump into some hormone deliciousness today with Dr. Aviva Ram. Some of you probably already know her because she is one of the queen bees of hormones. She's an, a medical doctor. She's also a nurse midwife. Her background is in nurse midwifery. We actually found out that we went to the same high school in New York City, Bronx Science. So we have lots of things in common, mostly that we love women, we love women's health, and we love talking about hormones. And we love real talk, right? So you guys don't listen to me because I, I paint a pretty picture. I tell it like it is, and so does Dr. Aviva wrong. So if you've been feeling belittled and dismissed by the medical establishment, you're in the right place because you're going to get some truth talk about what's going on with you and how to discern the hormone intelligence and wisdom that your body naturally has that you were born with and was just socialized out of you. So maybe you will learn some tips to how to tune back into what she's telling you and transform your hormones and your health. I think that that quote really exemplifies what Dr. Aviva Ram is all about. She shared this quote with me before we met for her interview and it's really what she wants for you. It's what I want for you. I think that you will get lots of information that can help you to thrive and not just survive in this life. Because if you're just surviving, you're not doing it right. So keep coming back and you'll get the information that you need. I will tell you a little bit about Dr. Aviva and then we'll get started. So Dr. Aviva Ram is a medical doctor and a midwife. She's Yale trained for her medical degree and she's a board-certified family physician who specializes in integrative gynecology, obstetrics, and pediatrics with a focus on women's endocrinology. She's also a world-renowned herbalist and author of the textbook, Botanical Medicines for Women's Health, as well as seven other books, including The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution and her new book, Hormone Intelligence, an instant New York Times bestseller, which explores the impact of the world we live in on women's hormones and health and brings 
brings us a new medicine for women that is holistic and natural, while being grounded in the best science and medicine have to offer. A practitioner, teacher, activist, and advocate of both environmental health and women's reproductive rights and health, she has been bridging traditional medicine, total health ecology, and good science for over three decades. Her podcast, articles, books, and online programs help women take back their health. Welcome, Dr. Aviva Ram. Thank you so much, Karen, for having me. <laughs> I am super excited to talk to you about hormone intelligence. Oh my gosh. I freaking love your book and agree with really everything that you say. And I love how honest you are and oh. you you're honest. I mean, it's unfortunate, but we've got to face some hard truths right now about the care that we are giving women, or should I say not giving women. And I love that you're honest and that you really stop the medical gaslighting that's going on. And you say, women, you are right. You are not being taken care of. You're not being nurtured. So talk about how you became so passionate about women's health. Well, it started out really early for me. I, as we were chatting about before, um, Karen and I, you all, we we both went to the same geeky science high school in New York. We both went to Bronx High School of Science. And I knew I wanted to be a physician even as early as ninth grade, but I wanted to get out of New York and I was living in a housing project. And I mean, I had this, you know, like amazingly feminist mom. So I had a good perspective on women's rights. But the commute from where I was living to high school was an hour and a half. It was super stressful. So I went off to college after ninth grade. I started college when I was 15. And it was during that first semester that I had like all this extracurricular learning about women's health politics and healthy living and organics and the military industrial medical complex. And we're talking back in 1981. So this was a long time ago. And when I started to look at the history of women's health, the fact that at that time in 81, the C-section rate was already becoming a concerning issue, how high it was getting and at that point, it hadn't even hit 19% yet. Now we're at like 34% nationally. In 1981, it was still legal for black and brown women to be sterilized at childbirth without their consent in California, for example. So I'm like this idealistic 15-year-old learning all this stuff going, all right, I got to change everything. And I left school and apprenticed myself to Muslim black radical <laughs> midwife in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And then I really like got a whole new level of education of seeing what people were experiencing in terms of like medical racism and lack of access to care. So it kind of goes pretty far back deep in my roots of the things that I was just very blessed and ballsy enough to like that combination of like stepping out there to dare to take some chances and then those people being in my path to help me understand. So that really kind of just pushed me to a whole new commitment to deeply understanding healthcare. And I became a home birth midwife. And that of course, in and of itself is a massive and major experience in education. And the predominance of my midwifery practice was actually in Atlanta, Georgia, which still to this day and back as far as when I started midwifery there in 1985 has the highest 
maternal and infant mortality rates and the greatest lack of access to maternal health care in the country. So I was really steeped in this whole, you know, lack of access. And at that time too, you know, we're talking like 81 all the way into really the mid 2000s, believe it or not, things like herbal medicine, nutrition, midwifery, these were really fringe. I mean, really, really fringe. The medical model was not giving any of these things, even lip service at that time. It was like you were either in the system or you were out of the system. And if you were out of the system, you had to try to find care that you could rely on and people you could trust, most of whom did not have, you know, recognized credentials and training. So I when I was on this journey of being a home birth midwife and then decided to rekindle my earlier journey of going to medical school so I could bridge those worlds for people who were looking for things that were out of the box about medicine and health and healing while still having access to reliable information that they could trust. I mean, sometimes we do need conventional medical care. So I also wanted to be a voice and an advocate for people needing it, but like increasingly my mission is now to also just be a voice and an advocate for changing healthcare because healthcare providers are getting burnt out on how healthcare is too. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, the journey and where I've come through and come to. And then, you know, as part of that, I went to medical school. I mean, I went to Yale, I got my MD and did my internship in internal medicine, women's health. And I did my residency in family medicine because I wanted to add in the OB and the pediatrics, which most internal medicine docs don't do. I couldn't do the OB. I started to interview. No, like I started to interview in OB programs Uh and I actually withdrew my applications because I was like, I am going to be so unhappy as a midwife doing OB in that system. So I really give you credit for doing that. For me, family medicine was a softer way to be able to stay aligned with what I, who I was and where I was going. You know, it's interesting that, you know, you point out that a lot of herbal medicine was fringe, home midwifery was fringe. When I came out of residency in 96, a couple years later, I actually started being the backup for the midwives locally. And they had applied for privileges at the hospital to deliver decades before and been blocked repetitively. They even had a, they went to federal court and had a restraint of trade suit and they won. And the hospital, the the commission said, you have to entertain their applications along with all the OBGYNs. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. (laughs) And And that's for the nurse midwives, right? So that was for CNMs. It wasn't even for like the traditional direct entry midwives. And they had, the CNMs had an obstacle and they're trained in the medical model. Right. And even after the commission and the suit, and they said the hospital has to entertain their application, when they reapplied, they would always lose their application. And bottom line, they weren't going to let them in. And then I came and the tides had turned politically, and it was then in vogue to have birthing suites and allow the family in and have midwives. And so all of a sudden, they had a midwife. So I I actually sponsored the first midwife to join our hospital. And it was it was lovely to have her as part of the faculty there. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, in Georgia, there are over 90 counties that have no OB-GYN at all, no hospital access at all. 
So we were really trying to advocate. In fact, I just spoke this past year to the um, Georgia State Legislature. We did a lunchtime hour for them, still trying to get home birth midwives licensed. It's very difficult for nurse midwives to attend home births because they're under the auspices of the OB-GYNs. So if the OB-GYNs don't approve it, they can't do it or they'll lose their licenses and privileges. So they can't do it. And the direct entry midwives there want to serve these communities, but are blocked year after. We're talking 36 years now that I've been involved, still blocked in many states from attending home births when there's a complete lack of access to cares. Insanity. It is insanity. And I may be a little liberal on this, but I really think that it doesn't take all the training that we OBGYNs have to deliver a baby. And this medicalization of the process, really, I think the majority of births should be handled by midwives. That's my Yeah, I mean, we've seen that in every, I mean, we're not talking, you know, in the middle of the outback somewhere and, you know, Australia, we're talking about the middle of like the Congo. We're talking about Western nations that have like demonstrated that year after year after year, decade after decade, Canada, Germany, the UK, Sweden, et cetera, et cetera, that home birth is optimal for otherwise healthy women. And, you know, you used a word earlier that really got me thinking. You said that the families were allowed to come into the birthing suites. And this word allowed is something I've really been reflecting on, right? We're talking about grown ass women having babies (laughs) and we're still saying like, well, I'm allowed to eat in labor. I'm allowed to get up and walk around in labor. I'm allowed to do this. I'm allowed. We're going to allow you to do that. And I think like, you know, along with the medicalization that you mentioned and over-medicalization, we see this incredible infantilization as if adult women should have to be told what we're allowed to, as opposed to like, may I, or is it okay if I do this procedure or check you. And it's not just in birth, it's pelvic exams, breast exams, how we're talked to in the doctor's office. It's so insidious in medicine, this this infantilizing and mistreatment of women. And then of course, I mean, as you know, when it comes to women, black and brown women, it's like there are other tropes and stereotypes and biases that can come in and affect how women are given care also that just add to the complexity and hazards for women. It is, you are so right. It is so true. And I really think it's time for a a complete revamping of women's healthcare, (laughs) really a revolution. And I think your book is a great place to start because you cover a lot of these kind of sociopolitical issues in there. So can you tell everyone what hormonal intelligence means? Yeah. So to me, it means a couple of things. So one, this idea that we have actually an innate biological blueprint that really hasn't changed over eons of time, right? Women menstruate the same way. We get pregnant the same way. We give birth the same way. Internationally, we go into menopause basically at the same age. That may have changed a little bit historically over time, the age that we did. But these processes repeat over and over and over. Same hormones. The hormones haven't changed, you know, since we first started walking on two feet and actually even before. So this idea of hormone intelligence is that we have an innate biological blueprint. And I don't mean to be like reductionist about it. We just 
estrogen does what estrogen does. Progesterone does what it does. Thyroid hormone does what it does and it always has. And so when we look at like, why are women having so many hormone problems? We can't just say, oh, well, that's because you're a woman or that's because you have estrogen or it's because you have a uterus. We haven't always had all of these problems and certainly not at the scope and magnitude and amount of women that and people with a womb that experience them now. So hormone intelligence on the one hand is understanding that we have this innate biological blueprint. Hormone intelligence is also having the intelligence or wisdom to understand that blueprint and also the things that keep it aligned with that sort of biology that we have and what things disrupt it and how to live more in harmony with the things that align it so we can be more comfortable in our own skin, in our own bodies and in our lives. Because so much of what happens with our hormones, I mean, it's like the music that we're listening to all the time. It affects our mood and it's kind of like the internal music that's playing and it can really shape how you feel, how you think, what you choose. It can affect, you know, like even just having horrible menstrual cramps has a huge impact on whether women lose days at work and don't get a promotion or things like severe acne can affect whether a woman shows up for a job interview or not because she's too ashamed to show up for it if she's having a big outbreak, you know, and on and on. The list goes on of how these things affect our daily lives. It's so true. In my medical training, I really was taught and got the impression that we were little men and that we had this little extra accessory pack, like a little black bag you might wear to a black tie event that was our female hormone pack that conferred oh, the ability to reproduce. And that was like a separate department and it really didn't affect who we are foundationally. And, you know, in my journey, I've learned that Nothing could be further from the truth. We we are, yeah. you know, just foundationally different. And our hormones really, to me, are the foundation of every system in the body. Totally. And I think sometimes too, because as women, you know, we all know the statements, what are you on your period? I mean, we had a president that said to a reporter, is that your, you know, is that blood coming out of your who's it's or whatever right now? You know, it's like the, to admit that our hormones have an impact on our life and our actions and thoughts and behaviors, I think we fear as women is unfeminist or may kind of backfire on us in a way. And so we're actually denying our experience. We just end up blaming ourselves for things that really we shouldn't be blaming ourselves for. And we end up denying so many aspects of our creativity and our cycl- you know, the cyclic nature of our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I love how you talk about just the words that we use to describe our anatomy. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of moving towards a less violent nomenclature that is more nurturing and supportive of us? Yeah, we tend to have a very male-centered and militaristic approach to health in general. I mean, we all hear, you know, in this moment of the pandemic, right? Like, your immune system fighting and battling and we're very keyed into this war mentality. And with, with women's bodies, I mean, all the parts are named after men, even pelvic floor exercises were for women were originally named after Dr. Kegel. You know, we have our Bartolin's glands, we have all these pouch of Douglas, we have all these male named parts and then going even further with it at a, like the most fundamental level, the word vagina 
actually means a sheath for a sword. I mean, that doesn't get more violent than that and more male centric, right? Like as if our body part exists to be the cozy, comfy place to rest their thing as opposed to like, it's about us. So I really like to reclaim body parts whenever we can use an anatomically correct name. That's great. But I do think we need to rethink some of those names and maybe rename things. But you know, when we can just calling things what they are, pelvic floor, instead, you know, pelvic floor exercises instead of kegels. You can say birth canal if you want to instead of vagina. Not everyone who has one wants to give birth. So how do we rethink it? It's so funny because my oldest daughter is here visiting me right now and she's 33. And she was saying how funny it was because when we were growing, when the kids were growing up, I always used the term yoni, which is the Sanskrit. It's a sacred Sanskrit term for the female genitalia. And it means, and it's a, the shape is an inverted triangle that symbolizes it. And my daughter was like, it's so funny, mom. And whenever I hear it, she's like, I cringe because it was so embarrassing when I was a kid. But she's like, it's so popular now. And it's not necessarily the perfect word, but it is at least a respectful term for women's, really means the vulva. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, another love- thing too. Yeah. I mean, like Karen, like we, how, how often like, do I hear something or read something on the internet and someone's talking about their vagina, but what they're actually talking about is their vulva. Like just even understanding what our body parts are. So many women have no idea. I remember having a young woman come to me. She was looking for birth control options and I was explaining a cervical cup or a diaphragm and saying how it goes over your cervix. And she's like, well, what's a cervix? And I'm like, honey, we need to talk about, like if you're old enough, just think about having sex. <laughs> like we need to, you're old enough to know your body parts. So correct. It's so true, Aviva. And I used to, when I practiced basic OBGYN, which I don't do anymore, I used to keep a mirror in my exam rooms and I would show everyone when yeah. we would have the speculum exam, this is what your cervix is and show them their anatomy. And I was surprised how many women had never looked yes. at their anatomy And when they Um, do, they're like, oh, that's amazing. Or that's really cool. Or wow, that's not what I thought. Yeah. I am for anatomy and biology education, age appropriate all the way through our training. Just so I think we'd have a lot fewer health problems. I love how you explain, because this is something I harp on. And I love how you describe this. Hormones are messengers, Mm -hmm. symptoms are our messages. So I don't think a lot of people understand what is the role of hormones? What are they doing? Can you talk a little bit about that as messengers? And then symptoms, I think we are really socialized to believe in our culture that symptoms are to be avoided. And when you get rid of the symptom, you claim victory and you fix the problem. Can you talk a little bit about these things? Yeah, for sure. Well, as you and I both know, I mean, even in basic medical school, basic endocrinology, we learn that hormones are chemical messengers. And that's what they literally are. They are produced in one part of the body in a gland. So that could be your hypothalamus, your pituitary, your thyroid, your adrenals, your ovaries. And then those chemicals are released. And usually like when we're talking about female hormones, we're talking about estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, but many others play an important role like cortisol and thyroid hormone and insulin. And so they're released from wherever their origin place is. And then they travel through the bloodstream to whatever their 
point of action is. So for example, we produce hormones in our brain called follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone that travel to the ovaries and tell the ovaries, which is where we produce eggs each month to like, wake up, it's time to start growing one of these or many of these follicles. And then they ripen one and they cause it to mature and it releases and then that place that's left over produces hormones. So they're just these beautiful signaling molecules. And really, they shouldn't make too much noise. I mean, we shouldn't really be that aware of their presence in any significantly um, uncomfortable way. They should just do their job. But some of the jobs that they do, for example, estrogen does make our breasts get fuller each month. And so it may be that you do notice some like a little bit of, you know, tension in your breasts premenstrually. And that may be part of our normal experience as women just noticing those changes, or it makes our uterine lining get thicker. So we may notice premenstrually that our uterus feels like we feel heaviness in our pelvis from our uterus kind of just weighing a little bit more from that uterine lining that got built up. But the kind of crossing over into the line of where it now becomes a symptom is when it's causing you discomfort in your life. So your breasts are just killing you. Like you can't even put your bra on premenstrually. That may be a symptom of too much estrogen. And for some women, that can be a risk factor for fibrocystic, uh, for cystic breast disease, but also for breast cancer. Having too much estrogen that causes you to have a lot of really heavy periods, really a lot of pelvic discomfort may be also a risk factor for uterine fibroids because of that too much estrogen. We've been taught as women that all of these signs that we get each month, you know, breast fullness, PMS, heavy periods, late periods, cravings, incredible mood swings are just kind of par for the course of being women. And in that we lose an incredible piece of information, which is that just, you know, as one example, our menstrual cycles are considered a sixth vital sign. They actually tell us when things aren't going quite according to that hormone intelligent blueprint. So if we ignore or suppress those little symptoms and signs, even if they're just causing us, you know, minor discomfort, but definitely discomfort, we're potentially suppressing opportunities or stall other problems later on. So that's why it's so important to listen to these little symptoms and these little messages and take them seriously. Often when we don't listen to them when they're small, they start getting louder and louder and louder until they're a full, full-blown condition. So that's why I say that symptoms are important messages from our hormones. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I love how you say, don't kill the messenger. Yeah. (laughs) Because the symptom is there to tell you something. You know, I always, I call our body she, and she's telling you something. Yes. She's telling you what's wrong. You know, she's saying, sweetheart, I hurt here. Take a look, not take a Tylenol. (laughs) Right. And the Tylenol may be great for the moment. Right. But if we're doing that day in and day out, we are missing an opportunity. And a lot of the gynecologic conditions that are very common, whether it be PMS or whether it be menstrual cramps or polycystic ovary syndrome or a lot of breast tension, you know, cyclically skipped irregular, but all those things are harbingers of later conditions in the sense that many of them are triggered by 
excessive inflammation or insulin resistance or blood sugar imbalances. So it doesn't mean, you know, I don't want people to be all freaked out. Like, oh my God, I have menstrual pain. So I'm going to have a problem later. It's not like that. Mm -hmm. But if you do have persistent symptoms, understand, and that's what I wrote the book for. Essentially, it's almost like a guide to your body's symptoms and signs and what they mean and what you can do to get back in alignment with what our hormones mm -hmm. are really trying to do. Great. Well, and I know everyone should get the book, but can you give them a little kind of overview of wherever they are, at whatever stage of life, whatever they're dealing with, maybe heavy, irregular, painful periods, PCOS, yeah. whatever it is, what kind of would be a general overview of the path that they should take to start addressing these problems? Yeah. So I think the first thing is really just to acknowledge that you're having them and then be forgiving of yourself. I know we both love quotes and one of my favorite quotes is Maya Angelou is like the font of, she's the quote goddess. So she really she is. is my source of often my favorite quotes, but she says, I'm going to paraphrase, but you know, we do what we can with the information we have when we have it. And when we know better, we do better. So the first thing is just to be really honest with yourself about the symptoms you're having. Because as women, we are taught to ignore them, suppress them, pretend they're not happening, just gloss right over them. So really give yourself permission to be truthful with what's going on. Learn what the symptoms are and start to identify where in your body you're having them. So if you don't know your body parts, if you don't know what your uterus is, your bladder is, your intestines, the difference between your vagina and your vulva, where your ovaries are, look at a good image go to my book, go online and start to identify, you know, what are those symptoms? What are they associated with? And if you can find a wonderful provider, that's always a great step is to have someone you can really partner with in exploring what's going on. And if you've had bad experiences with OB-GYNs before, you can go to a nurse midwife, you can go to a nurse practitioner. There are other woman-centered practitioners in practices that are mostly women professionals that can often be a softer landing for you as you're figuring it out. And if you need an OB-GYN referral, often those people will know who the ones that are going to be more in alignment with what you're looking for are in your community. And then, so with my book, for example, and in my medical practice, I help women identify not just what the medical symptoms are and the medical condition is, but what are the things that we know that may be contributing to those that we can do something about. So for example, we know that women who have really painful periods often have more inflammation. And we know that movement, some dietary changes like reducing red meat, reducing dairy, increasing fruits and vegetables, not even rocket science, mm -hmm. can really make, really make a difference. We know that there's data showing that women who are lower in vitamin D who supplement with calcium may actually be able to reverse their menstrual pain. So learning the tips and things that you can do, um, whether it's your diet, your sleep habits, things that we know about the impact of the microbiome on our reproductive health, identifying the things that you might be getting exposed to in the environment that you can re reduce. So for example, one study that I thought was really interesting looked at a group of teenage girls 
who were using body products that were very high in phthalates, which is a form of plasticizer. It makes plastics soft. And they were also drinking out of plastic water bottles and plastic cups. So the researchers measured their blood level of phthalates, had them go, I think it was one week only, of no body products that had those in it. So like clean body products or no body products and just no more drinking out of plastic. And within that week period of time, their phthalate levels plummeted. Well, we also know those phthalates and many environmental chemicals act as what are called endocrine disruptors. They actually act like estrogen in our body. So they're bumping up the level of estrogen, they cause inflammation. So learning just even a few things from each of these categories that you can do, you really can transform your health, which is one of the other, one of my favorite quotes, which is an anonymous quote that I found on the internet like Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, but I love and often repeat to my patients and when I teach is your body has the capacity to heal beyond anything you've ever been led to believe. And I don't mean that just, you know, if you just change your thoughts, your fibroids are going to go away or you're not going to get breast cancer. Health is much more complicated than that and disease is much more complicated than that. But in conventional medicine, we're taught that our medical conditions are basically genetically programmed and they're fixed and they're inevitable. And once we have them, there's nothing we can do about that. And that is really for at least 85% of medical conditions, according to an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, that's not true. 85% of our chronic medical conditions can be prevented or altered, improved, reversed completely with simple lifestyle changes. But then of course, you know, sometimes it does need a little bit more. So that's where partnering with a good integrative practitioner, your conventional practitioner who knows integrative therapies may help you. And of course, that's where my book and articles that I have, I'm sure you have articles too, can really come in handy to learn from people that you trust, what supplements, what specific foods, what specific, you know, we know that there are a few specific yoga postures that really have been found in research to help with menstrual cramps as an example. And this is, so with my book, but also, you know, when we think about women's reproductive health, my book covers from the first time you have a period all the way till through perimenopause. And then of course, menopause is its own unique life phase. So learning about the phases of your life, learning about these different common conditions and how to prevent and reverse them is so powerful. It is. Thank you for outlining all of that. Mm. I know when I I was reading the book and you told, you have a section called Women Women Unseen and Unheard. And you quoted, if just one doctor had listened to me, I wouldn't have lost years of my life to this, end quote. And I talk to women every day. I know you do too, who they're just so, there's so much frustration. They're not being heard. They read your book. They hear us talking online and they know that a higher standard of care is available for them, but they're really having trouble accessing it. But I also love this quote you shared about from Maya. She is the quote goddess. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I just think that women are being 
belittled and dismissed and somewhat becoming demoralized by the medical system. And I know I'm harping on this, but I want every woman listening to this to hear that she is validated, she is heard, she is seen, and she's not alone and there is help. Yes, and you have to, I mean, it's so hard because we're so taught to be polite and not question authority, but it's your body you know your body best. If you're really, if you're experiencing something, don't let someone else gaslight you and tell you you're not or dismiss it as just stress. I mean, stress may play a part in what's going on, but if you're experiencing anxiety, depression, period problems, fertility challenges, heavy periods, menopausal symptoms, don't just let somebody tell you that's just normal. You shouldn't suffer. If you need to get another opinion, get another opinion. You know, I have this, um, when I my girls were teenagers, of course, I mean, who doesn't love Beyonce, right? But they told me about <laughs> Sasha Fierce, which is Beyonce's right. kind of alter ego, right? So she would, she would channel Sasha Fierce when she had to go out on stage and do something that was like a little bit beyond her comfort zone in the early years, like be more bold or be more sexualized or like, you know, in an empowered way. And so I I say to women, I even have an article about this on my website, learn to channel your Sasha Fierce, like whatever that is for you. It can be any name you, it could be Wonder Woman, it can be Sasha Fierce, whoever you, it is for you, but channel her when you go into a physician's office and hold your power. And there's so many things you can do. Make notes about what your questions are so you don't get talked over. Bring an advocate with you, but trust yourself. It is so important. You know, we live in a system. I mean, and you know, Karen and I, we're doctors. We're here telling you like, in a sense, how to hack the system because <laughs> I mean, you are sometimes vulnerable when you go into a system and your doctor has seven or 10 minutes to see you amongst the 50 patients he or she may be seeing in that day and is trained in a medical system to dismiss women and absolutely not trained at all to recognize that there's more to healing and health and wellness than just, you know, here's a pill, here's the pill, here is a surgery or whatever, whatever. There's a lot of gray space there where you can do other things instead or before in many, many cases. Not always, but in many cases, probably more often than not. Yeah, I love that. Channel your inner Sasha Fierce, put your big girl panties on and (laughs) and just do it. One of the things that I really work with all the women I work with on with their health is their energy body and their story and their, his, her story. And I love how Carolyn May says that your biography becomes your biology. And so it's really an integral part of the work I do with women. I love this quote you shared from Clarissa Pincola Estes, the doors to the world of the wild self are few but precious. If you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much, you almost cannot bear it. That is a door. If you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. And I'm wondering if you can share what that means to you and how you incorporate this in the work you do and how women should start to kind of answer the the call that I think this statement gives. I couldn't agree more about our stories and how we think of our stories and how we tell our stories. And in fact, in Hormone Intelligence, in my medical practice, the book and and what I do with my patients one-on-one, one of the things that I do share is a practice on writing your story, 
reading your story and rewriting your story so that you are the heroine of your story. So many of us have stories that include mistreatment or trauma or being in the dark about something that was going on in our bodies. The quote you shared earlier from the woman who said, if somebody had just told me about this years ago, I wouldn't have lost years of my life. The number of women I hear from who thought that they're like, horrible, debilitating, don't go to school for three days of the month, every month period pain was normal because their mom Mm -hmm. experienced that too. And nobody said, "Uh, you could have endometriosis no matter what, that's not normal. You shouldn't suffer like that. It's so astonishing. So really writing your story, whether that is your life story and how you are where you are right now, or just your gynecologic and reproductive health story. And the other thing, and the reason I ask women to read that and rewrite our story is that very few of us are ever taught that we can be the author of our story. And I don't mean that we have control over everything that happens to us in our life. Like we write it and that's how it is. Life is much more interesting and exciting and a mystery than that. And I want (laughs) us to also be open to the possibilities of what we're not like fiercely controlling, right? But when we look at our stories are we the victim of our story? You know, if you had a gynecologic experience that was victimizing, for example, 7% of women now report birth trauma. There's a percentage of women in the United States now having such significant birth trauma that it is diagnosable as PTSD. Women who struggle horribly with endometriosis or PCOS who become so identified with the trauma or so identified with the diagnosis that they feel victimized by their own bodies or by the health system. So how can we rewrite the story so that you're kind of literally visualizing out a different pathway and a different ending, if you will, for yourself that puts you more in the driver's seat? What does it really look like when your life is the way you want it to be, when your body is more of your friend, you feel at home in your body. The the quote from Clarissa to me is really about, it kind of reminds me of that Leonard Cohen quote, which is our cracks are where the light comes through. Mm. And how can we use those cracks and rather than seeing them as a deficit, how can we see them as our superpower? And it's a little bit like that Japanese art. I think it's called kintsugi, where you take the wounds of a broken piece of pottery and you paint them with gold so that they're like they're actually sealed back together with gold so that the broken vessel becomes even more beautiful and more of an art piece than maybe even the original one as it was sort of created to be. So how can we start to look at the experiences we've had, even the traumas we've had and not dismiss them, but to actually say, what strength, what power have I maybe gained from this? For me, for example, I grew up in a physical environment, both in my own home and in my neighborhood that kept me on high alert. Like I was very adrenally activated childhood in many ways. And So for me, I'm very, very alert to my environment. I'm also incredibly perceptive about what's going on in my environment. I had to learn to read faces and expressions easily as a child for my own physical and emotional safety. But I'm also deeply aware 
of the facial expressions and sense of safety of my patients and others and able to just read subtle nuances. So how can you reframe so that those parts of you are now a gift that you can bring forward to the world and also recognize when you're activated so those parts are driving you in a not healthful way. So like if, if I can become overactivated, I can become anxious rather than perceptive. I may become overperceptive or misread something, right? So how do I start to pay attention to when I'm in that consciousness? So for me, that's really what that Clarissa quote is. It's about seeing the beauty in all of us and all of our stories. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing You're it. Welcome. And I could just go on talking, talking, talking to you, but I do want to be respectful of our listeners' time and attention. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Aviva Ram, do you have any, where can people find you? Where can they find out more? I know they can get the book Hormone Intelligence wherever books are sold, but tell them all the places that they can find you. So I love hanging out on my Instagram. I am one of those weird people. I don't love social media in general and all the bad things about it, but I do love connecting with my community. So if you go to Dr. Aviva Ram on Instagram, you will find me. And that's really me in the comments and DMs. So, you know, it's just like quick, like little tips and and things I'm thinking about and a little glimpse into my life. That's a great place. And then if you want tons of articles, podcasts, videos, ebooks, information. My website is the place to go. It's just avivaram.com. And it's very easy to navigate. You'll find topics that interest you that you can search for content for. Awesome. Thank you so much for those great resources. Thank you for the work you do. Thanks for helping with the revolution when it comes to women's health. I have to ask you this one last question. What is it going to take for us to really overhaul the way women's health is handled uh, in the mainstream? You know, it's already happening. You know, when you talked okay. about mid, you talked about midwives, right? And midwives mm-hmm. creating a presence. I mean, it was really women in a sea change kind of way speaking up for and demanding what they want. And sadly, the medical system is also a it, it is a industry and it's driven by consumer demand. So the more we all actually do channel our Sasha Fierce, the more we actually do say to our providers yeah, I don't really want to be talked to that way. Or I really want you to have this integrative information to tell me so that I'm not just getting the pill. The more we express ourselves, the more we demand it and you know, how we communicate on social media, what our needs and expectations are, it will continue to change. Yes. Great. We, we, we actually can change it with where we, where we put our money in healthcare, you know, the more we're going to get other form, the, the nutritionists that we're seeing, the health coaches that we're seeing mm-hmm. that creates that sea change also. Right. Great. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Aviva Ram. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone who's listening right now. We really appreciate you joining us for another episode of the Hormone Prescription Podcast with Dr. Kieran. I will talk with you next week. And until then, peace, love, and hormones, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.